You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think we sometimes forget, as I alluded to last week, that these letters in the New Testament were intended to be read publicly before the congregation. And as Paul writes these letters, they weren't to be read in secret by the elders in a meeting, but to be read publicly to the church on a Lord's Day, just like this one. And I do wonder, particularly in this section of household codes, what it must have been like to be sitting in that congregation on that Sunday morning that this letter was read. Paul gives his instructions to wives. Wives, the pastor reads. Where some women perk up their ears. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, the pastor reads. And the men, of course, perk up their ears. They listen intently. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then the rambunctious little child sitting next to you stills his body when he hears, children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then the parents, likewise. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then, as the letter continues to be read, these words come out of the pastor's mouth. Bond servants, douloi, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And as the slave humbly receives his word from the Apostle Paul, perhaps with his master in the very same gathering, and then the pastor reads the instructions from Paul for masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. What must it have been like for a slave and his master to be sitting in the same church Worshiping the risen Christ. It's fascinating to imagine what those sort of cross-cultural, countercultural dynamics of the first church would have been like in the first century. Because as slaves and as masters were converted to Jesus and born again as they heard the gospel, the gospel sort of upends and turns around the relationship between a master and his slave. Now, typically a passage like this one before us is one that we rather quickly go to applying to the relationship between an employee and an employer. Now, such applications are very helpful and appropriate to do today, and I will do so. But we can't move to that application too quickly. We can't go to the modern workplace too fast 
without answering some crucial questions that this text raises. Because the passage raises some perplexing questions that we need to face. Why doesn't the New Testament urge Christians to abolish slavery? Why didn't Paul lead the church here? He had an opportunity. Why didn't he lead the church to greater social reform in the Roman Empire? And why doesn't Paul command Christian masters to liberate their slaves? And even though America has outlawed slavery, the memory of slavery continues to be a scar on our nation's conscience, a wound that even to this day we are still trying to reckon with. But slavery does continue to exist even now around the world in the form of human trafficking for forced labor or sex trafficking and forced prostitution. So while slavery in this country seems to be growing into a more and more distant memory with each generation, slavery is a present reality for people around the world. So how does the gospel speak to the issue of slavery and how should Christians respond and think of it? So as we look at this text this morning, we're going to first consider what does the gospel have to say about the institution of slavery. And then second, we will take our passage and we'll apply it to employees. And then thirdly, we'll apply it to employers. So let's first think more broadly about the gospel and the institution of slavery. (coughs) Before we come to grips with how the first century church dealt with the issue of slavery, we do need to understand the historical context of the first century world. And we have to be very cautious of too quickly making comparisons between slavery in America and slavery in first century Rome. It's easy to quickly make those comparisons. It's it's understandable. The horrors of racially chattel-based slavery often comes to our minds when we approach texts like this. And so slavery in the ancient world was different than the typical slavery we think of of the Africans here in America. And so slavery in the ancient world was still a system that needed to be abolished, but it did have some significant differences that are worth noting and being mindful of. Slavery in the ancient world did involve the ownership of people as property. The pagan philosopher Aristotle said, a slave is a living tool. And so the pagan world thought of slaves as objects, as a tractor or horse. But the pagan philosopher Aristotle also admits, though, that slaves are a little bit different than just a tool, even though he says such. He said a slave is a kind of possession with a soul. So by the time of the first century, about a third of all the people in the Roman Empire were slaves, a third. Ancient slavery in Rome was not racially driven, but it occurred most often due to social standing. Prisoners of war became enslaved. Abandoned children, like we talked about last week, were trafficked into slavery. Poverty could lead someone to sell their possessions and to sell their family into slavery as a way of economic survival or welfare. Poverty could lead somebody to sell themselves into slavery. Slaves were were property considered in the ancient world with limited rights. The owner had the right to put to death a slave should he run away. So slaves, though, were also dignified in a way that we often don't think about. 
Slaves were seen as members of their master's household, hence why they show up here in this household code. They were seen as members of that household. So in the ancient world, slaves could actually achieve a quite high social status. They usually borrowed the the street cred of their master when it came to their social standing in the public square. Slaves often received higher education than their masters, and it was customary for slaves in the ancient world to gain their freedom over time. So if you were to teleport back into the first century and take a walk down the streets of Rome, you would not be able to tell by appearances which person was a slave and which person was free. They were not marked by a particular skin color or a particular dress or uniform. You couldn't identify slaves by that way. Slaves often owned slaves themselves and could possess property in the first century. In fact, selling yourself into slavery was actually a strategic means to quickly work your way up the social ladder. Climbing up the ladder by selling yourself to a master that had higher social clout and position in society than you did. And so an ambitious young person could use slavery as a way to quickly climb that ladder up, building professional influence in a coveted sphere that he could later use in his anticipated freedom later in life. So though it's not exact, but it is similar to that of a medical student who might become an underpaid resident with long hours and little pay at a prestigious hospital just to get the opportunity to work there or a lawyer who might take little pay after law school for the chance to work as a clerk of a respected judge. So we don't want to glorify Roman slavery in any way, but we are beginning to see, though, that it is different than our popular conception of slavery. American slavery was ethnically based, dehumanizing, and permanent. In Rome, slavery was ethnically neutral, It often elevated people's social status, and it was usually temporary. In the first century, slavery was foundational to the Roman economy and assumed by all, master and slave alike, as a perfectly normal and legitimate thing. But that does raise the question, though, how does the Bible think about slavery? This can be a great stumbling block for many people outside of the faith as they read the scriptures. Slavery was a normal part of all ancient cultures. The law of God for Israel regulates slavery as a facet of fallen human culture, but the scriptures never condone nor celebrate slavery. In fact, God's regulations in the law intentionally limit the time frame of slavery and forbids its abuses. So an Israelite who sold himself into slavery due to poverty was required by law to be liberated in the year of jubilee. Slavery, as it's described in the Bible, is never rooted in the principles of God's created design. It's very different than the sort of things that we've been seeing in the household codes so far, where Paul has continued to ground these relationships of authority in the household in the natural order of creation. For example, Paul, when he talks about husbands and wives, he roots that command for their differing roles in Genesis chapter 2 in creation. For children and parents, he grounds the relationship of differing authority there in creation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he gives the Ten Commandments as proof and demonstration of this creation principle. 
But when it comes to slavery, Paul gives no creation mandate and no biblical justification for it. Slavery is an unnatural thing. It is an effect of the fall. It is a perversion to God's good design for humanity. Nothing in our passage today affirms slavery as a divinely mandated institution. But even if we are to accept that the Bible just regulates slavery and doesn't celebrate it or defend it, part of us still wishes, though, that the New Testament would have just gone farther and condemned it outright and called for its immediate abolition. Why didn't the apostles do that? Well, there are a few reasons why the first century church didn't make such a ploy. First, we have to remind ourselves that the early church was politically powerless. Politically powerless. They had no illusions whatsoever in any way that they might be able to sway the opinion of Caesar. They were the outcasts. They couldn't, they had no political momentum whatsoever. They were, they were the, the scourge of the Roman Empire. So Paul, when he urges the, the Timothy to pray for kings and who are in all high places, he prays a rather simple prayer that they might be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, Paul just says, just pray that the, the government will leave us alone, right? To be able to worship in peace and to live a quiet and godly life. So the apostles had no desire nor expectation to form a political platform other than the revolutionary claim that Jesus is Lord. So by confessing Jesus as Lord, that was already thought to be politically subversive in the Roman Empire, but arguing for the immediate abolition of slavery would have made them seditious fanatics and economic revolutionaries to the first century. So if they were to adopt a political agenda, making the abolition of slavery their dominant platform of focus, it would have ultimately detracted from their evangelism and the work of spreading the gospel throughout all the nations. Second, slavery was a temporary arrangement. Slavery was a temporary arrangement. The Roman slave did not typically live as a slave throughout his life. Some did, but many did not. The opportunity of freedom usually came for a slave at some point in his life. Between 81 and 49 BC, 500,000 slaves were freed during that time period in the Roman Empire. In fact, in Paul's day, there seemed to be great social reform amount in the Roman Empire as the Roman culture seemed to be becoming more civilized in terms of thinking about the issue of slavery. The treatment of slaves were improving The Roman Empire started giving rights to slaves to marry and to own property and more. So in general, things from the first century perspective, things were getting better on the issue of slavery in society. So as the gospel arrives and as it spreads throughout the ancient world, it comes to a culture that is becoming more humane in its treatment of slaves. And while Paul doesn't advocate for the abolition of slavery, you read him carefully, he seems to expect, if not assume, that the gospel will be the death knell to the institution of slavery over time. Even in our text in Ephesians 6, Paul is sowing gospel seed that will destroy slavery, beginning with the gospel in the Christian community. So in verse 5, he calls for slaves to obey their masters as they would Christ. Look at what he says. Bond servants, 
Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. In verse 7, you're just slaves to render with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So they're working ultimately for the Lord. And in order for slaves to do this excellent work as an act of goodwill, they do so for the glory of the Lord. So slaves are commanded by Paul to do good towards their masters. But then read verse 9. It would have been shocking to his original audience. Paul calls masters to do the same to them. To do the same to them. They are to do good to their slaves. They are to serve their slaves as they would the Lord. So he commands them to stop abusing their power and to stop with the threats. And he reminds them of God's judgment that is to come both for the the free man and for the slave, and that God will show no partiality when it comes to that final judgment. He reminds the slave owners, guess what? You've got a master too, and he sees all, and you will give an account. You see, the privilege of the master, Paul says, has no advantage when it comes to the final judgment of God. God will settle accounts. Paul's instructions here are revolutionary the institution of slavery. It is revolutionary to his culture. It subverts the very institution of slavery and its logic by the power of the gospel. So Paul consistently emphasizes all throughout the letters that he writes of our equality we have in Jesus. So throughout his letters, he says that slaves are on even turf with their masters when it comes to the cross of Christ. In Galatians 3, verse 28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3.11, Paul says, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So one of the shortest books in the New Testament, the shortest of Paul's letters, is his letter to Philemon concerning his runaway slave, Onesimus. But Onesimus runs away, interacts with Paul, gets converted to Christ as he hears the gospel. And so Paul writes a letter to urge his master to forgive Onesimus and to receive him warmly. And listen to what Paul says in that letter. It's absolutely revolutionary. He says, to receive this runaway slave back to his master, He says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Paul tells Philemon, receive Onesimus. He's not not just a slave. He's not just a bondservant to you. He is your brother in Christ Jesus. You see, the power of the gospel redefines all our human relationships. And so does it unravel the logic and the institution of slavery. But we have to admit that the slave trade of Africans was a horror that should not have happened and lasted for far too long. And we must acknowledge that it was many Christians who defended the slavery of Africans by twisting scripture to justify it. But we must also realize that it was men like William Wilberforce and John Newton, driven by their convictions of the gospel and a right understanding of scripture, who would work to eliminate the African slave trade. 
So despite the stubborn hearts of humanity, the gospel eventually put the ax to the root of the institution of slavery. But by the grace of God, the church has now come to see her grave error. She has repented of her sin, and she rightly recognizes the equality of every human being as made in God's image, and that rightly recognizes the power of the gospel to make us family, brothers and sisters in the same household of God. So now that we've come to terms a bit with the issue of slavery, I think we can come and study this text a little bit more carefully as we apply it to Christians in the workplace. So let's secondly think through the gospel and the Christian employee in verse 5 through 8. Paul's instructions apply to Christian employees with one very clear difference that we need to keep in the back of our minds. We have the freedom today to choose or not to choose a particular employer. We can leave our jobs for another one. We've got the freedom to do that. We have to remind ourselves, though, that slaves did not have that freedom. But the instructions that Paul gives of excellent, servant-hearted work apply in our workplaces. While the slaves were compelled to give up their time for their masters, in the marketplace today, we choose to give up our time to obey an employer in exchange for compensation. And we do that voluntarily. So Paul tells bondservants to obey their earthly masters in verse 1. Their earthly masters, or you could translate it as masters according to the flesh, or lords according to the flesh. The word master and lord are the same word in Greek. So as, as Christians, our preeminent lord, our ultimate lord, our heavenly lord is Jesus. He is the Lord over all. And as Paul reminds us later in verse 6, he tells us that we are ultimately bondservants of Christ. We are slaves of Christ by the gospel. But we also have earthly masters, don't we? We have human beings who exercise authority over us in our work. And these earthly masters, and to these earthly masters, Paul commands us to be obedience, obedient to their authority. He further describes that obedience. He says we are to obey with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. Workers should respect and honor their employers. They should obey them with a sincere and willing heart. As we obey, we want to show honor to the one who is in authority over us, and we want to do what they say with a willing heart, Paul says, not a, not a begrudging heart, not a grumbling spirit, but willingly. So when we approach our work with this sort of servant-heartedness, Paul says we honor God when we do so. The, the phrase fear and trembling appears elsewhere in Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians 7, 17. Paul describes how the Corinthians received Titus with fear and trembling as Paul's emissary to the church. Philippians 2.12, Paul tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So the language communicates, fear and trembling, it communicates respect, submission to authority, honor, seriousness. In the Old Testament, the language of fear and trembling is often used in the saints' response to God. Psalm 2.11, about our Christ, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, 
Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And so in our text, Paul states that slaves should have the same reverence for their masters as they do the Lord himself. Look at verse five again. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. As you would Christ. We are called to respect the authority of our employer as we would the authority of Jesus himself. Our fear and trembling towards our earthly masters is an extension to God's authority. So if we fear the Lord, then we will fear the authority he has placed over us, even in our workplaces. Now, all the caveats of submission and obedience that we've made throughout this section of household codes applies here as well. We always obey God over man. We must never commit sin, even when our employer commands us to do so. We refuse. And if the time comes when we are called to obey God's word or obey our employer, we choose God's word every time. And we protest. Even if we lose our jobs, we do so gladly, and we will go out the door gladly terminated in obedience to the Lord, counting it worthy that Christ would count us worthy to suffer for the name. But God not only commands us to respect and obey our employers, he also calls us to do excellent work. Excellent work. We are not to do our work, he says, by way of eye service. Eye service, or as people pleasers. What does that mean? What does eye service mean? The, the phrase is a single word that takes the, the Greek word I and the Greek word slave and kind of joins them together. I slave. So it, if you do your work with eye service, then you work only when someone's watching. Only when someone's watching. When the boss is watching, I gotta look busy. I gotta, get, I gotta look like I'm doing something. When the boss walks away, I'll pull out Facebook on my phone and kill a few minutes, right? A Christian who works only when watched is a Christian without integrity. Such eye service is insincere because it's not concerned about doing good and serving your employer as you would do good and serve Christ, but, but eye service is only concerned about impressing others and ultimately serving yourself. If you do eye service work, you're not serving because you loved your neighbor. You're serving because you love yourself. You just want to get paid with doing as little as possible. Such work might impress your boss. Oh, when I walk by, he's always looking like he's doing something. And your boss might be impressed that you are a good eye service employee. But it doesn't honor the Lord. It might impress your boss, but it doesn't please Jesus. Because such work is selfishly motivated. Eye service and people pleasers are, are kind of connected in a way. If you've ever played sports, maybe in high school on, on an official team, right? You, you know exactly what it's like when you go and you warm up before the start of practice. And the coach commands everybody to get in formation, get in line, start doing your stretches. And perhaps the, the coach will command you to do some push-ups. And so everybody gets down and do their push-ups. But there's always someone on the team who straightens out Gets good form when the coach is watching. But then as soon as the coach turns his back, collapses on the ground and rests. That's eye service. That's eye service that is not fitting for a Christian. If you only work hard because you desire to please others or to be thought well by others, then you are only working hard if other people are watching. But for Christians, though, we don't think of our work that way. 
It's not just about getting a paycheck. It's about honoring the Lord. For the Christian, we work as an act of loving service to our employer, and our ultimate aim is not to impress our boss, but to please God. Paul makes that really clear in verse 7. Look at what he says. He makes it more explicit. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Who are we working for? The Christian ultimately works for the Lord. So we can do eye service work that impresses our boss but dishonors God. And we can do people-pleasing work that doesn't impress the boss but does honor God. A Christian recognizes that in my work, my ultimate aim, my ultimate goal is to honor and glorify the Lord. I, I always want to work under his eye. I live as a Christian quorum Deo before the face of God. And God sees. He sees my working. He sees how I spend my time. And I want to honor him with my life. As Paul reminds us, we may be bond servants to an earthly master, but we do our work, he says, as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So we do excellent work when the boss is looking and when the boss is not looking because our ultimate aim is to please the Lord, to do the will of God from the heart. The, the obedience God commands for workers is wholehearted obedience. Begrudging, grumbling, complaining work does not honor the Lord. We do it from the heart. We do it from the very depths of our souls. You have your current employer and you have your current job at the command of a sovereign God. He has given you that assignment for this season. And though we are free to change jobs in the Lord, if we choose to keep a job, we should be faithful, joyful, and respectful in our work. So guard your heart, Christian, against grumbling against a difficult boss. Guard your heart against growing cynical about the company that you are employed by. Guard your heart about being embittered against your coworkers. Guard your heart with a rebellious attitude when you're working. If you can't serve your current job with joy and excellence, chances are the problem has more to do with your heart than your job, by the way. But if the situation really is that untenable, then you need to look for a different job where you can honor the Lord rightly. But remember, Paul writes this to slaves. He's writing to slaves. The slaves didn't have the option to look for a different job. They were forced to have the master that they had. And even in that challenging work, even in those difficult circumstances, God's people are expected to do their best work with joy as service to Christ. We render service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, Paul says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Your boss is not omniscient no matter what sort of surveillance system they put on your computer, right? And he's not. Doesn't know what, he's, know what you're doing all the time. But you know who is omniscient? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees our work. And if we do good work with joy for God's glory to serve our neighbor, then the Lord will see and he will reward as he sees fit. And God shows no partiality. The principle stands, he says, whether you're a slave or whether you're free. So as we work, we must see it 
as a way to glorify God and love others. We work to serve, to wash the feet of our bosses and of our coworkers and of our customers. It means that we gladly, in our workplace, as Christians, take on the most menial and messy tasks. It means that we inconvenience our schedules to help a coworker as an act of kindness. It means that we work efficiently and that we resist distractions so that we might do more good with our day. And as we serve others in Christian love through our hard work, our ultimate aim is to worship the Lord, doxology, to praise the Lord by our excellent work. We do it ultimately for him, not for our employer, not for us. We do it for the Lord, unto the Lord. So if you commit to embracing joyous, sacrificial, hard work, such work often goes unnoticed. Why? Because you're going to be working that way whether your boss is paying attention or not. But the Lord will see, and he will reward accordingly. He will reward your faithfulness. Perhaps in your job right now, you feel underappreciated. You feel unnoticed. You feel undervalued by your employer, and perhaps you are. But remember, you work into a God who sees, a Christian who grumbles for recognition from his boss, has forgotten the boss he's really called to please. Whether we are a slave or whether we are free, God is impartial in rewarding faithful work. Brothers and sisters, the applications here are really endless, aren't they? You can apply them to your workplace. If you're a student, do you study with this sort of excellence? Do you apply yourself to your studies? Do you pay attention to the instruction? Do you do your best work on the assignment or do you coast and get by? Do you work diligently to master the material? Do you honor and respect your teacher? Or do you do sloppy, quick work to get by or do you do it with excellence? Apply it to your career. Apply it to your workplace. Do you waste time? The average typical office employee spends 7.5 hours a week on social media during working hours. In what ways are you thieving time from your employer that your employer has committed to pay you for? How can you improve your focus? Are you improving your skills at work, striving to become more valuable to the employer who hired you? Or have you grown complacent in the development of your skills? Are you keeping up with your field? Are you keeping up with the latest technology? Are you kind and generous to your other fellow employees? Are you reliable? Do you show up to work prepared and on time? Are you lazy? Does your employer ever regret hiring you? Christian employees should be the best employees, the best employees, as we work in light of the gospel and in love for our neighbor and for the glory of Christ. But excellent work done by godly Christians in the workplace also has a great commission aim to it, doesn't it? Chances are, for most Christians, our workplace is the most concentrated time that we are around unbelievers throughout the week. Why would our coworkers listen to our gospel if we fail to show the lordship of Christ by the excellence of our work? Are you a faithful witness to Jesus by the excellence of your work? Do you demonstrate how the gospel empowers you to serve with joy by your conduct and by your attitude? A Christian who rightly understands our call to exercise dominion in this world for the glory of God, that we should do this work for his glory, because ultimately we do it for him. 
And that leads, thirdly, to consider the gospel and the Christian employer, right? what we might call the masters. We've already discussed the revolutionary nature of Paul's words here. In the same way he calls slaves to do good and to serve their masters, so are masters called to do for their slaves. Do the same to them. Do the same to them. All authority, all authority possessed by a Christian ought to be used in service to others. The greatest among you, Jesus says, is the one who serves. And so the same is true for the employer. A Christian must never be a mean-spirited boss who spews out threats to his employees. He mustn't be a tyrant ruling with fear, but a servant caring for others with Christian love. Paul gives masters a firm word of rebuke against the use of threats. John Stott said, threats are a weapon which the powerful wield over the powerless. And such threats are unfitting for God's people. If a master abuses his authority to harm those underneath it, Paul reminds them that ultimately, masters, you will give an account to Jesus. He sees, and he will hold you account. And notice how Paul connects the master's threats with the judgment of Christ. Look at what he says in the text. He says, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master's and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, Paul sobers up haughty masters by reminding them of their place before the master, before the Lord Jesus Christ, we will all stand on equal footing. Christ shows no partiality. Paul reminds Christian masters that you may be free, Roman, wealthy men, but if you understand yourself rightly in the gospel, you are a slave to a master, the Lord Jesus Christ. All Christians are bondservants of Christ. And it is in the reality of Christ's judgment that we must never use our authority to threaten or to harm those underneath it. Not every Christian will be a boss, but chances are you will. Maybe you are. At some point, you will have authority over others in the workplace, whether you are a manager, whether you're a small business owner, whether you are a company executive, And if the Lord, Christian, entrusts you with such authority in your workplace, how will you use that authority? How will you use it? Will you use it to serve them and to be a blessing to them? Or will you use that authority to create a culture of fear and exhaustion from your employees? I think capitalism has done a great good in our world and has brought the West into unrivaled prosperity. But no economic system is perfect because sinners live and operate in the economy. And one of the challenges of capitalism is that employers can see employees as but disposable cogs in a corporate machine. It becomes quite easy to put profits before people. And Christians must always be on guard against this greed that can dehumanize employees that can chew them up and spit them out all in the name of profit-making. Making profits is a good thing. A shrewd manager should strive to do good by bringing profits to the business owner. But for Christian business owners and executives, you must strive to make a profit while caring for your employees. You must see yourself as a servant to those who work for you. How do you do that in your business? 
Well, I can't answer all those questions for you. I'm a pastor. I'm not a businessman. But you are, and you can think about your unique workplace and your, your field. I, I do know that you need to include in your business plan a way to properly care for your employees. It's a Christian imperative. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a, a mind of Christ and rooted in his word and seek the counsel from other believers. But I can give you a few diagnostic questions to help you think about, Christian boss, how you should exercise your authority for the good of those underneath it. Do you give your employees the tools that they need to succeed? Are you investing in their training and in their resourcing? Are your employees equipped for the job that you're asking them to do? Or are they frustrated by their lack of knowledge? Do you look for ways that you can serve your employees and help them as you encourage them in your work? Based on marketplace comparisons, are you on the higher end of the range of compensation? Do you show generosity? to your employees? What sort of benefits do you offer them? You see, as you lead them, do you frustrate them with a lack of communication and with unclear expectations? Do you crush them with unrealistic demands? Are you forcing them to work an unhealthy amount of hours that is unsustainable in its pace? Are you giving them time off? Are you giving them generous vacation time and sick leave? You see, a Christian who is responsible for caring for employees should do so with love, compassion, and the generosity of Christ. Because as you manage employees, you want to do so in a way that properly honors and glorifies Jesus. The gospel reminds us that the greatest among us is the one who serves. Authority and service, greatness and humility are not terms that our world typically puts together or that the business world promotes. You might not get that in your MBA program, but as you wield authority, remember your master. Remember to whom you will give account. Remember you are a bondservant of Christ. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and when he came, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was entitled to our service to him, but instead of requiring us to work for his good, Jesus came and achieved the work of the cross for our good. Our master has become our servant. He washes our feet. He endures the punishment of sin upon the cross, and he bestows us generously with the abundance of his grace and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is our Lord. He is our master. And yet, Jesus has not withheld any good thing from us. Now, what is our proper response to this good master this morning? Well, we confess him as Lord. We repent of our sins. We place ourselves under his yoke, for it is easy and light. Jesus frees us from the slavery of sins to make us a slave unto himself. Therefore, every Christian is a willing bondservant of Jesus. We are willing, we're glad to be, because we're glad because Jesus, though he has ultimate authority, he is good and he serves. He's the generous and he is the gracious master. And to our master, let's now go in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you might bless us as we seek to do our work for your glory. You are our master, you are our king. And Lord, we do our work under your eye with excellence and joyous service to our neighbors. Lord, we pray that you might help us in this task. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.